welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. It occurs to me that we might want to announce to our listeners that we are going to an every other week schedule for a while. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I herewith announce that we are going to an every other week schedule. These podcasts are extremely fun to do, but also massively time consuming. And JF and I have been just burning out, banging out an episode a week throughout this term. Uh, I don't know about you, JF, but like I could do with a slightly slower pace yeah of, uh, no i agree the pressure got a little intense there recently at least for a while we're gonna we're gonna do a new episode every other week and see how that goes right i don't know maybe maybe we'll get bored again and, and just be like oh my life is so meaningless without spending hours every day editing and yeah well it is it is fun to do um, it is fun. Yeah, no, it's and, true. And, I, don't, know, I don't want to give the impression that I'm down on it because I really love doing this show. Yeah, no, I know. And, you know, maybe once we start our Patreon and we're rolling in dough. That's right. We'll be able to, like, justify the uh, time it takes every week to put an episode together. But anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on process type stuff. Um, we are today talking about MC Richard's centering, or at least the first chapter of it. Yep. Wonderful text. So you like this? I loved it. I'm glad. Yeah, I loved it. MC Richards, I should say, just by way of introduction, she was a poet and a potter. She was originally an academic. She had an academic job teaching English at the University of Chicago in the 1940s, which she gave up to work at the Black Mountain College, a famous alternative institution of higher education founded along the lines of John Dewey's educational philosophy. And it was there that she picked up the practice of pottery. And she became a ceramics artist. And then the rest of her life, after Black Mountain College closed, she worked in a variety of, I don't know, freelance isn't quite the right word. I mean, she lived the art life, what David Lynch calls the art life. Often very poor, living in a couple of sort of commune-type situations. She ended her life actually working at an, I don't know what the word for it is. It's a little bit like the... Um, well, what is the name of that organization that Leslie's family was involved with? Oh, L'Arche. Yeah, L'Arche. Yeah. A little bit like L'Arche, a community for people with developmental disabilities, where she worked until her 80s, working with people, teaching them how to throw pots uh, and writing poetry. She was passionately committed to education, but determinedly turned her back on academia. Anyway, so that gives you an idea of who she was. Centering is a book that was published, I think, in 1964. It was originally a talk she gave to some craftsmen where somebody wanted her to write something that would communicate to craftsmen but would attain some kind of wider vision. And she wrote a piece called Centering as Dialogue, which ended up the first chapter of the book that she was commissioned to write for Wesleyan University Press. And it's that expanded version of that talk that we're talking about today. It's kind of an extraordinary book. It's hard to say exactly what kind of book it is or even what part of the bookstore you should put it in. The contemporary edition that you can buy on Amazon has it filed in psychology slash new age, which doesn't seem quite right to me, but those are categories that I guess are as close as you can get to what this book is. So it does deal with psychology and in its tone of affirmation and uh, rapture and ecstasy often does feel slightly new agey. But it was originally part of a series of books published by Wesleyan University Press that included books by John Cage, uh, who was a very close friend of hers. She was married for 10 years, or at least common law, married to David Tudor, the pianist who worked with Cage throughout his life. And she was an intimate of that whole avant-garde circle. And so this book was originally published as part of a series of books that were both philosophical, but also reaching for some kind of new horizon in the 60s. And so like John Cage's works and also Norman O. Brown's books, I think Love Against Death, was also published as part of that series. And so 
this occupies a very particular place in American intellectual life that hardly exists anymore. And so it's sort of like odd placement in the psychology new age section of the bookstore sort of tells a tale. Anyway, so those are a few things to know about M.C. Richards. I'm curious to hear what your reaction to this was, J.F. I was really taken by the uh, the philosophical content and the animating spirit of her ideas about art making and creation, which are very much rooted in a kind of religious vision. I don't think any particular religion. In her autobiographical text, she says that she's Christian, she's Muslim, she's Buddhist. She doesn't say she's an atheist, though. <laughs> she she, yeah. she lists off all the religions. And so she seems to have an appreciation of this um, religious uh, vision, this religious aesthetic. And that resonates pretty much in every sentence in this chapter and in the foreword. Yeah. So I was really taken by that. And I was reminded while reading it of a great passage from Carl Jung's uh, autobiography, Memory, Dreams, Reflections. He's talking about the period in his life where he discovered the secrets of the mandala, right? He noticed his patients would tend to draw mandalas when told to draw something. They would draw circular um, patterns and stuff like that. And then he started to do the same thing. And and he realized that the mandala making was kind of the, the seed crystal of artistic creation. It was closest to the archetypal process that's at work in any act of creation, and especially any act of self-creation, of becoming something in the world. And he wrote about his insight when this happened, when he discovered the power of mandalas. He, he wrote, there is no linear evolution. There is only a circumambulation of the self. Uniform development exists at most at the beginning. Later, everything points towards the center. This insight gave me stability and gradually my inner peace returned. So we tend to think of life in a linear way. Oh, I'm going to get this diploma, then I'm going to do this, or I'm going to get this published and then this will happen. But in fact, what's really going on in life is this kind of like circumambulation. You're always turning around the center, getting closer to it, sometimes further from it. But the center remains the constant. This kind of spiral motion is closer to the actual shape of a life than any type of linear trajectory that we imagine applies. And she's very much writing about this. And her, her central metaphor in the book is the act of centering in pottery, which, if I understood it correctly, the first step in throwing a pot is you center the clay on the, uh, what do you call it? Not the kiln, but the thing you... On the potter's wheel. On the, on the wheel, yeah. And that's the moment where you find this connection between yourself, the creator, and the, the material that you're creating with. And then something new can emerge from that, something unexpected. She writes a lot about how every pot is different and everything you create in pottery and by analogy in poetry and any type of art form, any type of craft really, anything you create will have your signature in it, that it's part of this unique process that you are. And she refers to this unique process that you are with the word person. This is a central word for her. The idea that the universe is a person and that you are a person in dialogue with other persons and with the great capital P person. This is kind of one of the central ideas of, of her text. And I really like that. And yeah, and I was taken by the fluidity of, of her writing and also the way she blurs any really clear line between art and craft. She's kind of yeah. moving along the same lines as, not McLuhan, but uh, Glenn Gould is when he talks about the yeah. artisan replacing the artist. She's, she's kind of uh, rejecting this idea of the artist as a discrete, separate force, this force of pure ideational kind of creation, and really plugging the artist back into this world of matter and forces where yeah. you co-create with the materials around you and, and something Absolutely. emerges from you from the process. So I, I really enjoyed that. That sort of co-creation idea is, I think, really important. I mean, it's in fact in the first paragraph, I think the first paragraph, I should probably whip my book out. Um, yeah, it's in the very first paragraph of the first chapter of Centering. Centering is dialogue. You know, she's talking about how you touch the clay, but the clay is touching you. You apply a pressure of your hand on the clay, but there's a firmness and resistance to it, and you're playing with that. And there's a kind of knowing of the hand, yeah. you know, or a kind of thinking with the hand that goes on in the making of art that has to do with craft. She thinks of the etymology of craft, the German word kraft, which means strength. Yeah. And she thinks about this like, yeah, the strength, our vitality, this vitality that we have with which we touch 
the objects of our craft and which touch us in return. And we have this kind of dialogue. And so she writes, centering, that act which precedes all others on the potter's wheel, the bringing of the clay into a spinning, unwobbling pivot, which will then be free to take innumerable shapes as potter and clay press against each other, the firm, tender, sensitive pressure which yields as much as it asserts. It is like a hand clasp between two living hands, receiving the greeting at the very moment that they give it. It is this speech between the hand and the clay that makes me think of dialogue. And it is a language far more interesting than the spoken vocabulary which tries to describe it, for it is spoken not by the tongue and lips, but by the whole body, by the whole person, speaking and listening. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Every sentence in this is beautiful. And it's interesting, too. It's like it's beautiful in a particular way. It's not necessarily going much of anywhere. You know, if you tried to reverse engineer this chapter or any of the chapters in this book and say, okay, so what would be the main topic headings? Can I construct an outline for this? It would be almost impossible. It's difficult even in an individual paragraph sometimes to know exactly, okay, so what's the chain of thought? She has a line in the foreword where she says, this work has not a plan but a music. Right. And I think that that's very telling. This is a kind of writing on the on the model of music. It has almost a, sort of like a Baroque Fortspinnung quality. If you think about like a Bach Brandenburg concerto or just think of a fugue, you know, we have a theme, but that theme is set in motion with countless variations. It's set against itself in inversion with itself. It chases its own tail. It, it moves in circles. I mean, again, actually that motif of circles I think is at play. Her writing often has this feeling of circumnambulation, of moving round and round in a spiral, always returning to its themes, returning to its ideas. Yeah, um, in, that, in that sense, they're essays in the, the technical sense of the term. Like, this is something that gets lost in school because the word essay is used for a different sort of thing. <laughs> yes. You go back to Montaigne or you look at the great, great essayists like David Foster Wallace of the a recent great, uh, but even Albert Camus or um, you know my favorite essayist uh, C- or George Orwell. George Orwell. Orwell's essays are amazing. Ciaran, uh and I was thinking oh, Chesterton that we've been reading mm-hmm. recently. The essay is a kind of circumambulatory form. It's about. It's not so much about convincing someone through some point by point argument of some yeah, conclusion. That's right. It's exploratory. The word essay comes from the French essai, which means an attempt. An essay that succeeds isn't an essay anymore. <laughs> it's a dissertation. <laughs> so an essay has to fail in a sense, or at least it succeeds in the failure. It circumambulates an idea and then lets something bloom in the mind of the reader. And I think she really, really excels at this particular practice. And in fact, her thesis or her, her subject matter is that, how everything is a question of circumambulation or of centering. The minute you adopt a linear mode of thinking, you're already, well, you can do that if it's a means to an end, but the minute you reify that, you're already losing the music of yes. of real living. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, that's right. And that really comes across, even though it's never stated maybe as such formulaically at any point in the, in the essay. was reminded of our uh, recent episode on on Duchamp's urinal and how, in a sense, we've landed here on a text that expresses the absolute antithesis to Duchamp's idea of art. To call it a return to craft or a return to the physical process of creating something is an understatement. This is an absolute affirmation of craft as the central process, the central, the, the most fundamental procedure in art. It's all craft for her. Whereas for Duchamp and for the the marketeers who followed him and who dominate the art world today, it's precisely the opposite. Concept is all that matters. Craft is absolutely irrelevant. In fact, to champion craft is 
almost kind of a laughable thing, uh, maybe even an oppressive move. Yeah, because there's a strain of thought that prizes de-skilled art above all. Right. Because skill, craft, or virtuosity is always conceived as a kind of an empty formalism or an empty expression of technique. It's sort of elitist. Yeah. You know, it's the, God, it's the, it's the, the disease of punk. Again, the idea that what really matters is something to which virtuosity is not only irrelevant but opposed. So you have to strip away virtuosity. You have to strip away skill entirely to arrive at that something. And that something, I suppose, in rock, sometimes people will say, well, that's, you know, soul, or that's like some kind of raw primal meaning, which I actually i am okay with that idea. I, I kind of yeah, dig so that. Yeah. There's some punk that I actually really like. And to me, the punk that delivers, like the other day I was at a restaurant and they were playing Ramones and I was like, you know, fuck, this stuff holds up pretty well because it's that kind of music. It's just like stripping away things to get at something very, something that delivers yeah, on an the, emotional, satisfying level. But there's this other, the, the heresy is where you're like, oh, you strip away everything to arrive at an intellectual gesture. Or as you, as you said in the Duchamp episode, just a reaction to someone else's intellectual gesture. Right, right, right. That's right. the heresy. I mean, I don't think it's easy to do what the Ramones were doing. And I think that the, the no. uh, exhibition of carelessness, this kind of like, oh, look, we don't give a shit, is actually there's a lot of hard work behind it in, in the <laughs> best punk. I mean, you just look at... Or like, remember... in, or like in Dylan's music. I always like to point that out when I'm teaching Dylan. Yeah. In a class. Like you were saying in our episode, when we did the Joker Man discussion, you were saying how the little inflections and little choices that Dylan makes yeah. with every every note in his melodies, mm-hmm. they all have a purpose. I mean, there's a lot of practice that goes behind that. It takes a lot of work to get there. And of course, then what happens is that people fall for the, the superficial and they think, well, you know, the Ramones didn't never learn how to play their instruments, et cetera, and then I can do it too, and then it becomes this empty, vapid gesture. I got into Nirvana after Kurt Cobain died, and I was amazed listening closely to the music and reading about it and reading the lyrics, how much work Kurt Cobain put in to these songs. I mean, these were fantastic songs. They were pop songs, essentially. They drew from the whole history of pop music, he drew a lot on the Beatles, obviously. So to think that Kurt Cobain was actually the persona that we experienced, that we saw on the screen, this guy who doesn't care, that's, uh, that's a misapprehension of what's really going on in that music. And there's a lot of craft in Nirvana. And you can see that. I mean, we're just with, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the Foo Fighters, but you can see that, um, what's his name? David Grohl is actually a guy who really cares about music and about yeah, te- te- technique. And there is a kind of mannerist art that's very bad that just falls in love with his craft and yes. with the materials of art and pursues those to the exclusion of anything else and kind of for their own sake. MC Richards uh, touches on this problem in her chapter. She's comparing two of her students she had, one of whom yeah. was really insecure and would doubt every move mm-hmm. uh, she made and she was constantly questioning her own choices, et cetera, and this became a problem. And the other, who was really, really good, but it was empty. So he would make these perfect pots, but he found nothing in it. So there's this balance between soul and body, I guess, between uh, art and craft or whatever, between the what you bring of yourself into it, which is the soul part, and then what you learn from the tradition and from the material, which is the craft part. And all that's part of the centering, right? How to find yourself in there. So yeah, there there is an empty mannerism is absolutely possible. There's no shortage of examples of that. Television car commercials are exquisitely produced. They're very well photographed, but they're pure mannerism. Mannerism. Uh, there's nothing in there. Manurism. Manurism. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting about centering. Uh, or I don't know. I don't know if this is interesting. It's interesting to me. The timing of this is good. You know, this last term, I've started playing piano again. I have a weird relationship to the piano. Anyone listening to this who has spent a lot of time in formal study of classical music at a high level, like spent time in a conservatory, can probably relate to what I'm saying here. 
it's sort of similar to that second student that Richards talks about who is, um, well, actually both of them in a way. The, the first student, the one who's like overly critical is somebody who's like, if memory serves, she was like an academic. Yeah. And yeah. so Richards talks about how the way to get her to create was to have her make pots with her eyes closed. The sense of touch was sort of like including and embracing and the sense of sight was the one that was excluding and criticizing and so it was sort of like closing the one channel down to allow the other channel to express itself when you are in the formal study of classical music i mean it's sort of like athletics it's like doing gymnastics or something there's so many people in the world who can do what you do at a super high level and so the margin for error is very small if you're going to play a piece of classical music. You're competing against God knows how many thousands of other people who can play it better than you can. You have to work so hard to attain a super high level of polish. But you internalize this idea of like constant comparison of what you can do with what other people can do. You internalize this idea of the strictest professional standards against which you must always judge your own work. And it takes your art away from you to the extent that you almost don't think of yourself as an artist at all. Yeah. It takes it away from you. And this becomes really obvious when, or became obvious to me, and like later I'm doing more of an academic sort of thing and I don't have time to practice really, not regularly at any rate. Maybe I can grab 20 minutes here or half an hour there. And for much of my life since that, time in my life when I was very, very intensely focused on piano playing, I've hardly touched the instrument at all. And as I say, classical musicians who've gone through something similar may be able to relate to this. There's this, it's crazy, but there's this internal kind of voice that says, if I can't play on that level with that like shrink-wrapped technique, then what's even the point of playing at all? Right. And you just shut down. You're completely shut down by your criticism. So you sit down and you try to play something that you know how to play. And it sounds like shit because you can't. I mean, it doesn't sound like you have learned how to think it should sound. And then you're like, well, there's nothing in it for me to touch the instrument at all. And that's right. a terrible thing because, like, somehow your training, your highly sophisticated training has taken away from you the basic thing, this lovely instrument that you know how to play that you can touch with your hands and make sounds with. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, you know, I took piano lessons when I was a kid and I didn't stick with it and I wish I just stuck with it so I could play music like you do. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I don't know, I'd be able to buy a pack of smokes. Like, <laughs> Wow, that's expensive it, these days, too. Like I know, Canada, right? Here in Canada, it's like 12 bucks for a pack of smokes now. And and yet you don't value it. You know, you don't value your own art. You don't value your own material. And maybe this is why, like, that educated distrust of technique, of skill, of virtuosity actually has some basis in something real because that kind of hyper-professionalized kind of art education can lead you entirely away from art. And just to bring it back to where I'm at now. You know, I've been talking a lot about Bach on this show. Recently, I just started playing Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier a little bit, just like working on one of the Preludes and Fugues and just beginning, you know, my hands beginning to get used to moving in that way again. And, and, and what I'm having to learn more than learning the music, learning new pieces, is learning the kind of stuff that MC Richards is talking about, the very basic thing of like, no, 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 no. When, when you're playing music, it's you in the instrument. It's not you in the instrument and a thousand fucking guys who have played this piece that, better yeah, than you. That's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the key thing. And I think that's what her chapter is about. See, what happens is when you're training in a craft or in an art, it becomes very hard when you're making films for a living or television shows, as I do, to watch anything without breaking it down immediately, without analyzing the shit out of it, even as you're watching it. Uh, you become really, really aware of technique and how technique is used in different contexts and how things are done. You lose that initial spirit of play that got you interested in the first place, 
which is just the tactile pleasure of touching the piano keyboard or the magic of cutting pictures together to make a short film, you lose that because you're, you've entered into a reactive mode. I mean, one of my favorite ideas, the ideas that I think has the most affordances for me is Nietzsche's idea as translated by Deleuze, admittedly, in his very idiosyncratic book on Nietzsche. One of the key ideas is this idea of two modes of being. So for Nietzsche, everything was will to power, which doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean everything is will to domination at all. It means everything is will to self-expression, or even that. Everything is expressivity. That's what it means. And he says, but there are two ways of doing that. There are two manifestations in the human, and even in nature, of this will. One is active and one is reactive. And the active and the reactive are at war with each other in one sense. But in another sense, they're not because the active is not at war with the reactive. The active is just doing its thing. It's absolutely, it's in a spirit of absolute play. And that's what Nietzsche really revered. It was the noble spirit for Nietzsche. It wasn't a cruel or dominating spirit. It was a spirit whose self-expansion was so unstoppable that it manifested as strength and it was resented by those forces that remained stuck in the reactive. And all they could do is react to it so they couldn't actually enter into an active self-becoming of their own. So that happens constantly when you're learning an art form. You start with this active passion. You want to do this. You, you just feel that there's something there. Your interest is always, as she says in the chapter, your interests are always a kind of channel, a kind of invitation to becoming. So you pursue this interest, you enter into this active mode, and then you learn and learn, and then you learn what you don't know, and then you start to react to what's already out there. And then you can get crushed by that. You can get totally caught up in a kind of like uh, reactive tide pool, what you can't get out of, and all you can see is what you can't do. And you forget that it's not about achieving what person X or person Y achieved. It's about achieving what you, only you could achieve in this medium. It isn't necessarily the most prodigious or um, it doesn't really mean the, the most stellar performance necessarily. It means something absolutely singular that only you can bring to the world. And that's where the active mode resides. And so you have to find your way back there. So maybe that's kind of what happened to you in a sense is that you got caught up in that reactive mode and then took a break from it. And now you can come back to back and recapture that initial spirit of play, which your um, ambition kind of severed you from at some point in your career. Yeah. 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 She writes about imitation in kind of an interesting way. And something very characteristic of MC Richards is that she doesn't pick sides with things. Like if you say, what does centering mean? It doesn't mean what people usually think it means. Like when people say, oh, I feel very centered, they're talking about some kind of inner stillness. And that's not what she's talking about. She's talking about something dynamic, a constant whirl a spiral, a vortex of forces that are being brought to the center. That's an expression she uses constantly. She's always asking, what do we bring to the center? And she's not picking and choosing. She's like, well, we all have all kinds of things in us. Yeah. And they all get brought to the center sooner or later. And so her aim is wholeness. And we've talked about this before, actually multiple times in this show, talking about Lionel Snell's idea that the sovereign good of magic is wholeness, as opposed to, say, the sovereign good in art being beauty and the sovereign good of science being truth. You know, sovereign good of magic is wholeness. And certainly M.C. Richards is a magical thinker from that point of view because she is all about how do we bring to the center all these different parts of ourselves, parts of experience, aspects of the artistic process. And so imitation is one of those things. You can say like, oh, well, you know, as good avant-garde artists, I mean, keep in mind, she's part of this sort of post-war KG and avant-garde. We can say, we don't like imitation. We want to get away from imitation and just embrace the new at all times. But she's not interested in that. She's interested in this sort of systole and diastole as we bring imitation to the center, but then we also bring to the new to the center. And so she writes, some craftsmen seem to be troubled by the question of originality and imitation. My only standard here is that a person be led into a deeper experience of himself in his craft. Human beings learn by imitation, certainly in their years of childhood, almost exclusively by imitation. One is inspired by someone else's example. One seeks to do likewise. Sometimes the effort to do likewise gradually creates capacities and perceptions that one did not feel before. 
these periods of imitation are usually temporary. They too may be aspects of the long journey each one of us is on to get where we are bound for, consciously or unconsciously. And then she has this really interesting passage where she talks about an exercise for originality that she had as a potter. And this reminds me actually of a student I have this term. I'm teaching a class where we're talking a lot about improvisation, and so I'm having my students each adopt some kind of improvisatory activity. It doesn't have to be musical, but uh, some kind of improvisatory activity, and then write about it, keep a journal about it, and so on. And I have one student who is a jazz pianist who, like many conservatory musicians, has been somewhat wounded by her education. And she's writing a paper for me that talks about how she feels that Jazz pedagogy often leads you towards a kind of dishonesty. Mm. And her argument is, well, you know, you're trying to sound like Coltrane or you're just trying to sound like Bud Powell or you're trying to sound like someone else and everybody's going to give you strokes if you sound like them. But what about sounding like you? And I mean, it's a fairly obvious point, right? But she has adopted as a practice for the semester a thing where whenever she finds herself trying to avoid doing something wrong, quote unquote wrong, like making a wrong note, making a decision that would be considered like gauche or unskilled in an improvisation, she will do that thing. Yeah. And MC Richards has almost the exact same practice, but just in a pottery context. So she says, I have a finger exercise for originality, which I sometimes use. Working with a piece of clay, hand-building, I destroy every pleasing result, seeking the unrecognizable. For if it is new, it will not look like something else, not like driftwood, nor a Henry Moore perforated torso, nor like a coral reef, nor a Giacometti sculpture, not like a Hanawa horse, nor a Madonna, nor a free form, nor the new look of pottery in the 60s. It will look very odd indeed, if it is really new." insecurity we need perhaps the most when we are inventing. It seems like our philosopher's stone, turning base materials into gold. I love that. The idea is just sort of like, try to make something that doesn't look like anything. And you're going to end up with a lot of weird looking shit that doesn't necessarily go anywhere. And she writes later, she's like, you know, some of these things, it doesn't matter what they are in themselves. They lead you to places. Right. It allows you to develop new relationships with your material, which is what I take my student to be doing. Yeah. And there's a, a healthy relativization of the finished product in her work. Like the, the finished product yeah. is part of this ongoing work. There's a great passage where she relates an anecdote from China, a pottery anecdote. She writes... There are many marvelous stories of potters in ancient China. In one of them, a noble is riding through a town and he passes a potter at work. He admires the pots the man is making, their grace and a kind of rude strength in them. He dismounts from his horse and speaks with the potter. How are you able to form these vessels so that they possess such convincing beauty? Oh, answers the potter, you're looking at the mere outward shape. What I am forming lies within. I am interested only in what remains after the pot has been broken. I just love that. And yeah. it, it's it's like, like if, if there's one thing we can probably agree on art, it's that there is no right and wrong. We don't know what the new is. So a resistance to imitation is just as unhealthy as a full embrace of imitation as the sine qua non of artistic creation. Like, right. they're both going to lead you into dead ends. We don't know what the new work will be. You don't know what your new work will be, and you certainly don't know what the new work on, in the scene, on the world stage will be. So right. you need to be in dialogue with these different parts of yourself, the superego that's telling you don't imitate or imitate or whatever, and this kind of playful, childish part of you that just wants to make something different or to see what happens if you push that button, you know? And, yeah. and that dialogue is the process. So it's not like there's no smooth way of doing it. She says at one point, paradox is central. Like wholeness, I think, for MC Richards, from what I've read, isn't a dialectical process by which at some point you could stop the potter's wheel and be done with it. Um, That's right. Uh, it's not like you get to the final synthesis in a Hegelian way and, and the spirit is fully embodied and flourishing and it's all over and time ends. No, the creative process is intrinsically conflictual and involves a, a constant confrontation between these different forces in order to get to something like wholeness. 
and wholeness is kind of the sign that the conflict is continuing and that it must keep moving. You can never stop the potter's wheel when you're making a pot. You know, it has to keep spinning until the pot is finished. And then the pot itself just becomes part of this process of becoming. Yeah, and pots break. And pots break, but the spirit is what matters. What, what What the outward form contains is, in a sense, something eternal. I, I love the her decision to take pottery as the kind of... Because pottery is not a fine art. Uh, it, it is a fine art, but it's not one of the... The, the canonical Yeah, the fine canonical arts. Fine, fine arts. It's a craft and it's a, it's a useful art, as the medievals would say. So she takes that as her operative metaphor. And by doing that, she plunges all the arts back into the world of matter. And I really like her attention to materiality. Like one of the reasons I don't like idealism is that it, it tends to get pretty ethereal. It tends to get yeah. to separate itself or to conceptualize matter. Whereas she's into this kind of rough, messy material mm. world and you play with it and you try to bring something out of it. And this co-creation between spirit and matter is the thing itself. Not, neither one is the basic yeah. stratum. They're both kind of dancing constantly. Actually, right around the time you and I started corresponding, I was on sabbatical and I had a little grant to go out to Los Angeles to the Getty Institution Archive, which is mostly a visual arts archive. And they have the papers of M.C. Richards, all of her unpublished writings and drafts and letters and whatnot. I had encountered centering right at the end of the process of writing Dig. It was actually our friend Graham Larkin. Shouts to Graham Larkin, an Ottawa dude. Hey, Graham. We don't see each other nearly enough, Graham. You got to come on the show sometime. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he had told me about M.C. Richards. Graham had read Dig, my book, when it was in manuscript. And he was like, you know, somebody you should get into because she's sort of like almost a a Zelig figure, you know, just off on the corner of a lot of different historical tableaus that I was writing about. Um, she is known to some as the translator of Artaud's... Um, theater, in its, oh, what is, theater in its Double. Theater in its Double, yeah. And she was into that before it was cool. I mean, she, through David Tudor, who had gotten into it through his association with Pierre Boulez, she became fascinated with Artaud's idea of alchemical theater, uh, something that a lot of people don't know about Artaud is actually how seriously he took kind of hermetic ideas. And that was something definitely that both Tudor and M.C. Richards were into as well. Richards was, you said at the beginning, I don't know what religion she is. I don't know what religion she was either, but her most consistent spiritual connection was with Rudolf Steiner. Yeah. And and Steiner's anthroposophy. Anthroposophy, yeah. Uh, my mind just went blank. What was I? Start again by saying anthroposophy. Where the fuck was I going? Yeah. Anthroposophy. No, anthroposophy. <laughs> <laughs> Anthros- anthroposophy. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, it's, fortunately, it's not a word that comes up in conversation very often. Well, it does where I, my girls go to a uh, Steiner school, so it comes. Oh, up that's all true. The time. So it comes up. <laughs> so it comes up in your conversation all the time. Yeah. That's just. So she's known as a, as a translator of Artaud and. She really responded particularly to his idea of alchemical theater. Anyway, whatever. I'm I'm really getting off topic. Well, the Steiner is, Steiner was into alchemy as well. So yeah, the connection is there. Yeah. So that at least can offer some justification for why we're talking about M. C. Richards on weird studies. You know, yeah. like I say, sometimes it's not Halloween every day. Uh, sometimes <laughs> we talk about people who aren't you know Lovecraftian mad geniuses. But she did have her own connection to kind of the weird side of intellectual life. But anyway, one interesting thing I discovered when I was out doing research in her archive is a pretty pretty intense correspondence with Norman O'Brown. I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff. No, I haven't, no. 
Well, Norman Earl Brown is interesting because, like Richards, he was an English professor, he was an academic who was very dissatisfied with the limitations of academic life and was feeling his way in the 60s towards a kind of a more a more expansive vision of art and intellectual life. He, I think, was somewhat impressed by Richards and her embrace of the magical and the slightly weird, certainly from a conventional academic point of view, it would have seemed quite weird. Norman O'Brown himself made a number of kind of public gestures moving towards a wilder, more purposefully irrationalistic kind of engagement with literature. There's a Phi Beta Kappa speech that he gave that was sort of a a scandal in the New York intellectual scene because he came out and basically said, we should all be mad. We should all embrace the irrational and blah, blah, blah. But he was sort of like a little bit of a tourist, you know, a little bit of like an egghead trying to go mad rather than somebody who really was just a wild and open and free kind of person. And M.C. Richards is that kind of person. And so he was fascinated with her and uh, he sought out her company. It's unclear to me how intimate their relationship was, but there certainly was a kind of a, an intellectual intimacy. They're very close, writing sometimes multiple times a day to each other. And then they kind of fell out from each other. And I think M.C. Richards got a little sick of his bullshit I think she perceived that there was something always very intellectual and somewhat idealistic about his embrace of, you know, spiritual energies. And so there's a letter, one of the last letter of any length that she sent to him. It's a five-page letter where she's breaking down some piece of writing he did. I've never identified what it is. I think it was a talk he gave somewhere, and I'm not sure it was ever published. But something where he was leaning heavily on Freud and leaning heavily on sources of intellectual authority that still allowed him to be playing the kind of the intellectual game. And he was writing about human beings in this kind of advaita or like secondhand zen style that was very big in the 60s yeah. in intellectual circles talking about like oh the human being is sort of an illusion we are but tendrils of energy you know yeah. interacting within a kind of a cosmic oneness and sort of trying to demote the body and bodily experience and in this last letter she sends him she's really kicking his ass and like insisting no we have bodies we are people we have experiences those things matter and the last line of this letter it's unpublished it's really dope i got to read it exclusive content here yes that's right you won't find this anywhere but in weird studies <laughs> this is her kiss off line one last pps we are all real norman brown and don't you forget it Basic truth department. Eat cake and have it too. Only in that way is last secret dualism experienced as magic Tao diet to feed single magic fire of self and other. Yeah. And I, and what I really love is just like, we are all real, Norman Brown. Yeah. Don't you forget it. I love that. She was sort of spunky. You know, for all she has this sort of elevated diction, this sort of ecstatic, almost new agey tone, or it's easy to read it, I think misread it as new agey. She's also kind of a no bullshit gal yeah, and pretty hard hitting in her way. That What I love about that is it's something that I've thought often. I mean, the value of your philosophy will be determined with the first curveball life throws you. You know, if your philosophy can't even accept the irreversibility of even a minor quote unquote tragedy, if your philosophy can't deal with the fact that the events in your life are not something you can pretend didn't happen, then your philosophy is actually literally without worth. It's it's like a a flimsy little papier mache armor that you've put on that the first little gust of wind just blows right off you. So yeah. and what what I love about Richards is her absolute acceptance of the condition of existence. Yep, absolutely. Of time, of change, of of tragedy. She says of decay yeah. and sickness. And, and and if you can't include those, if you can't accept those, not by translating them into some kind of illusion, you know, like not by saying, "Oh, actually, I never did got, get sick," because nothing's actually happening. Your philosophy has to say yes to what's happening. 
and then. And that's what you were getting at, I think, with that German idea of art as nevertheless. That's right. Nevertheless implies, yes, I accept the condition. I accept yep. the conditions. Nevertheless. And it's that's where the poetry happens. She says uh, at the end of the foreword that we read, let no one think that the birth of man is to be felt without terror. I like that. And that's, nice. that, that's where things get weird for me. And this is another, I mean, I, she never mentions Jung, and I couldn't find any reference to Jung in her work, uh, which is all the better because it just substantiates what both of them seem to be saying. Uh, that they could be saying she, this. she read Jung, but at the end of the day, I think Steiner was for her a much more important figure. Yeah, and we could have a whole discussion about Steiner and Jung because Jung thought Steiner was basically possessed by archetypes because he took too literally things that Jung could easily turn into metaphors, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, although Jung, it's very unclear. Jung, Jung, there were two Jungs, and that's another discussion. But um, one of the things that she and Jung seem to agree on is that the process of individuation, the process by which we become full selves, is a terrifying process. If it's not terrifying, you're not doing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, the thing you need to look at is the thing your brain is constantly telling you, don't look there, don't look there. That's where you need to look. If you don't look there, you're not individuating. To me, the reason that's weird, that touches on the weird uh, for me, is because it seems to intimate the reality of a process, of a cosmic process that involves each one of us personally. That somehow each one of us has this responsibility to become something for reasons unknown. And that there is a way, a pattern, she says at one point, that she senses structure everywhere in the world. Another Jungian insight she has. That there's a structure to existence that you can't, you can't make sense of it because by making sense of it, you're just enlarging the field that needs to be explained. If you say, well, life is about individuating because of X, well, then why X? You know, you just constantly this infinite regress there. So there's this process that we're part of. We need to embrace it. It's terrifying. It's worthwhile, but we don't know why. And it, it seems to involve each one of us individually. Very interesting what you say about saying yes to everything. And she says this repeatedly mm -hmm. uh, in this book. There's a wonderful legend in Jewish Hasidism that in the beginning, when God poured out his grace, man was not able to stand firm before the fullness, and the vessels broke, and sparks fell out of them into all things, and shells formed around them. By our hallowing, we may help to free these sparks. They lie everywhere, in our tools, in our food, in our clothes, a kind of radiance, an emanation, a freedom, something that fills our hearts with joy and gratitude no matter how it may strike our judgment. There is something within man that seeks this joy, that knows this joy. Joy is different from happiness. I am not talking about happiness. I am talking about joy. How, when the mind stops its circling, we say yes, yes, to what we behold. Beautiful. And I just admire Richard so much because she later became aware of a limitation in that way of thinking. There's an interesting thing that I discovered doing research about her in the Getty Institute, that right as this book was being published in 1964, she had the worst crisis of her life. She had a bad illness where she had to have some serious operation, and at the same time, a relationship she had been in for a number of years broke up. She, this guy left her in a very cruel way, and the one-two punch of this just left her completely bereft, like sick and alone and frightened, genuinely frightened before a kind of existential misery, the likes of which she had never experienced. There's a piteous letter that she wrote to David Tudor, who long after they stopped living together, they continued to be good friends, where she describes her experience and she writes in it, this is another unpublished letter, another Weird Studies exclusive. Um, nice. Right at the bottom of this, uh, right at the end of this letter, she writes, uh, she had just published Centering, and she writes, the book Centering is out, but not yet in the stores. I did not know what a dangerous thing I was doing in writing that book, and I am paying for it now. And hmm. this is very interesting. 
It's like a superstition. It's like a superstitious thing. Like if you say, I say yes to everything. I say yes to sickness. I say yes to depression. I say yes to all the pain and misery of this world. You're tempting fate a little bit. You're, you know, fate is like, oh, okay. Let's see how you do with this. And it just so happened right as this book was publishing, she had her, she experienced a kind of personal nadir. What's interesting is later she wrote an introduction to the second edition. And she's talking about like what she would do differently writing it. And this is like 25 years later, the book was reissued by Wesleyan. And she's like, well, one thing I would change would be all the masculine pronouns. It was the style of the times. Whenever she wants to talk about people, she says man, right? Well, that was one thing she wanted to change. And the other thing she wanted to change has to do with this idea of saying yes to everything. She writes in the introduction to the second edition, the second change I would make is to add to the content a more adequate treatment of antipathy and the centering process in relation to it. Centering, I say, is the discipline of bringing in, i.e. of sympathy or empathy, rather than of leaving out of saying yes, yes, to what we behold. And that's a self-quotation from the passage that we just read. To what is holy and to what is unbearable. But my experience tells me now that there is an important crucial stage of saying yes to a no. For resistance also must be embraced. Yes. Not only accepting resistance, but practicing it. This is something I really appreciate from my own Catholic upbringing. It's the key idea of the balance of virtues and how virtues out of balance can become vices. So let's take compassion, the yes of compassion. If you hold that up as the only virtue, as a monolithic virtue, which trumps all the other virtues, including temperance, for instance, or like prudence, that compassion can become very dangerous. And you need, like Nietzsche says, you need to say yes to everything, but some yeses must sound like no's. <laughs> some yeses <laughs> some yeses or no's um yeah. you need to say there's a no involved in the big yes this is the critical uh, maybe we shouldn't get into this it's actually too philosophical or maybe i'll just do it very quickly is that if you read philosophy enough you'll notice that binaries and dualities constantly come up in every philosopher you know hegel is the master of the binary he's he developed this idea of dialectics, which is that you'll have a thesis and antithesis, and then a synthesis will emerge, and then a new dialectic will come out of that, etc. And that once a dialectic is transcended, it's integrated. That dialectic is integrated into the process and continues on, but there's a linear process. The critical approach in philosophy, which begins with Kant and is really perfected in Nietzsche, is that when you have a binary, one side must win. Like, if you have something like two opposing intellectual ideas, it's not that they cancel each other out in some new synthesis. It's that they're not symmetrical. Nothing's ever symmetrical in critical thinking. So one value will win out, but will change by virtue of integrating the other value. So it's not a dialectical move to something new. It's just, it's finding out what's actually going on. So you can't have just say yes to everything. Because there, your just say yes would blind itself to the essential character of negation that you need to reject certain things so you like you need this balance and I, yeah i guess if you were to say yes to everything including you know depression and tragedy uh, well you're going to suffer depression and tragedy and if your body's broken enough you won't be able to continue on the path of uh, self-becoming you'll be done yeah you know well richards has a great example of that in fact i think in this passage she is recalling that crisis that she had encountered in 1964, right as this book was being published. She writes, and this is the next paragraph after the one I read, the metabolism goes something like this, perhaps. We become ill. We ingest the illness. Say yes to it. Trust it. Listen to what it is telling us. But if we continue in this surrender, we may indeed be overtaken by weakness. A moment in my own biography came when I lifted my hand weakly and admitted, I have no resistance. I heard myself say the words, and a new impulse faintly beat in my breast. No resistance. I was a patsy for any wandering virus. I began to feel a kind of feeble indignation. My own interpretation of centering, it now seems to me, had grown one-sided. 
it would be the severest discipline for me to integrate the no, to reject, to judge. What was to become of love then? How about loving the enemy and doing good to those who revile us? I love the tiger, but I do not put my head in its mouth. What a riddle it is. One thing I wanted to get back to, and again, it's this part of this Catholicity that I see in her thinking, and in the in art itself, I think, is this idea that this Jewish mystical idea that the divine spark lies in every parcel of matter. Yeah. This is an idea that just like traditional Christianity incorporated and, and received from both the Greeks and the, and the Jews, I think, and then kind of found its own way of expressing. Flannery O'Connor, whose book Wise Blood I just finished, and I, we should probably we're do We're going to do yeah, that, right? We're going to do that at some point. I'd love to do it. It's a fantastic book. She was a devout Catholic, but also a brave and very weird writer. I'll just read a little quote here. St. Augustine wrote that the things of the world pour forth from God in a double way, intellectually into the minds of the angels and physically into the world of things. To the person who believes this, as the Western world did up to a few centuries ago, the physical, sensible world is good because it proceeds from a divine source. When Joseph Conrad said that his aim as an artist was to render the highest possible justice to the visible universe, he was speaking with the novelist's surest instinct. The artist penetrates the concrete world in order to find at its depths the image of its source, the image of ultimate reality. I think that there's something about artistic creation that is innately, and I'm divorcing the word from its religious connotation, but Catholic, in the sense that it's an affirmation that the world of matter is a world of symbols, a world mm. that speaks to us, and that by engaging in the transformation of matter into works of art, we're engaged in some kind of primordial work of restoring the divine in matter. And that's why, at some level, that yes has to be said to the, the whole world. You need to say yes to the world as it exists. You can't reject the existence of tragedy. You have to say yes to the existence of tragedy, but that doesn't mean you need to insist that your life become a tragic train wreck. You know? All I can say is that I have thought of her description of her own kind of crisis and her own dealing with that, her, the necessity of, um, of fighting back, of developing some resistance to this. I, I thought of this many times. And, you know, she did end up writing that treatment of antimony just not in centering. It's in an essay that was published in a later book of hers called The Crossing Point. And the essay is called Wrestling with the Daemonic. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think that she wouldn't have been able to write that forward to the second edition if the first edition hadn't appeared. And the first edition had to have that big yes in it. So in a sense, yeah. you have to build your resistance through exposure. That's, Im That's right. Immunology 101. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, you can't learn how to resist until you've experienced the thing you need to resist. It's so, absolutely true. So, and, and this actually brings back to something that you were saying earlier, we were saying earlier about you know, her idea of creation. Like, okay, that any given artwork is an instance of creation, but the, the thing that she is faithful to, the thing she really cares about, it's the thing that remains after the pots have been broken. It's that unfolding of creative energy in a person's life. And as you pointed out, that is not something that develops on a straight line, in a straight path. We're back to mandalas. We're back to, you know, a circular motion. You know, sometimes it is so frustrating being a human being and realizing you haven't learned anything new. You've just had to keep learning the same shit over and over again. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the wisdom is not in any one revelation. It's not in any one utterance or any one product, like, for example, this book, Centering. It's in the process of the life lived in this open-hearted way that Richards enjoins. As we go around in circles, walking round and round, passing the same mile markers, the same guideposts, learning the same lessons over and over again, stumbling on the same hidden roots and rocks. It's a little hard sometimes to wrap your head around that because you want there to be some kind of grand synthesis, some Aufhebung, some moment where it all makes sense or we arrive somewhere. And if you 
love art, if you spend your life thinking about artworks, that is something that is necessarily going to be a satisfying idea. I mean, like an artwork is a completed thing, you know. Bach's well-tempered clavier sits between two covers on my music desk. It's a completed work. But my engagement with it will never be complete. I will never stop playing that thing until I die. And when that happens, I won't have locked it down. I won't have gotten anywhere. What I have to show for a life of practice is secondary to the life of practice itself. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.